Well, good morning. It's great to welcome you uh, to Alliance. I want to begin by asking you a question. What comes to mind when I say the word Sabbath? Probably a lot of different things, depending on your background. If you're into a certain genre of music, you may think of the English rock group Black Sabbath with Ozzy Osbourne, who is said to have pioneered heavy metal, also known as when you can't sing, just play loud and bang your head, since that's what everybody else wants to do when you sing. If you are Jewish, you may think of the seventh day of the week, uh, where the Mosaic law uh, requires that you do no work. I'll even define that for you. You see, entire commentaries were written on Sabbath observance, telling us what you can and, more importantly, what you cannot do. Thus, observing the Sabbath became uh, one of the most important laws within Judaism. Now, if you're a Christian, I suppose it depends on what flavor. If you are Seventh-day Adventist, then your group teaches the seventh day, that is Saturday, yesterday, should be considered the Sabbath, still be considered the Sabbath, the day for Christians to worship and rest. Most other Christian groups, denominations and churches, believe that Sunday became the Christian Sabbath, that is, on Sunday, in perpetual remembrance of what we celebrated last week, the resurrection of uh, Jesus, the Christians should worship and rest on the first day of the week. And so, being a Christian nation and all, some of you remember Sunday blue laws in your communities when you were growing up. That is, many businesses were closed in observance of the Christian Sabbath, or at the very least did not open until after Sunday morning church services. And you certainly couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. I can remember walking into certain stores where there would actually be chains and padlocks on the beer and wine cabinets. Milk, bread, eggs, okay, beer, no. And even if your community did not have the blue laws, <laughs> some of your homes certainly did. You know what I'm talking about. You, you did not work, you didn't mow the yard or, or, or wash the car, and you didn't play sports. Basketball, uh, baseball, or even Frisbee, not on Sundays. Many of you then grew up thinking of Sunday as a solemn day, a somber day, a holy day, a day when anything fun was prohibited. It was a you-can't-do-anything day, a day in which you were more likely then to get into trouble. Of course, slowly but surely, those cultural norms have changed Yep, what was once inviolable has become violated. Not only do we play sports on Sunday, but we'll even schedule games and tournaments on Sunday mornings. And while I personally wish that they would not, I think it communicates to our children that sports are more important than corporate worship. I know I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to think that way. Some of you, though, uh, wonder if, in fact, those who participate are, are breaking the Sabbath, Gives you a little tummy rumble, tummy rumble. So, what comes to mind when I say the word Sabbath? <laughs> Certainly confusion. Perhaps some questions. Are, are Christians still bound to Sabbath keeping? I mean, after all, it is one of the Ten Commandments. 
Uh, Not only that, the Sabbath seems to have predated the law. God rested, you know, on the seventh uh, day of creation. So certainly Sabbath keeping transcends the law. Further, if we are to observe a Sabbath as Christians, which day? Saturdays or Sundays? Or can it be any day of our choosing if Saturday or Sunday do not work? Pun intended. And, and so, uh, I mean, if, if we do observe, what does Sabbath look like? No work? No, no washing the car? Mowing the yard? No sports? It's funny to me how people who think we shouldn't do anything on, on Sundays will watch sports. They'll watch other people work, you see. That means no fourth round of the masters for you today. Is there a positive side to Sabbath keeping? Is is it just a list of what we do not do? Or are there things that we do do? It's kind of like fasting. Does fasting just mean no food? Or is there a positive side to the spiritual discipline of fasting? And some of you say, nope, nothing positive about fasting. I'm just hungry. Uh, Sabbath. What is the positive side? Is there a positive side? Final question for you to consider. Is it possible that Christians actually observe a Sabbath rest seven days a week? Where where did this whole Sabbath thing come from anyway? Back in Genesis chapter 1, we, we read about the creation of the world in six days. We find that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that was in them. At the end of chapter 1, we saw God, as it were, sit back with a big smile and sigh as he observed everything that he had made, and he saw that it was, ah, very good. By, by the time we get to Genesis 2, when God had finished His creative works, we read these words in the first three verses of the chapter, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. But by the seventh day, God completed His work, which He had done. He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day. It's supposed to be a good day, you see, and sanctified it because in it He rested from all His work, which God had created and made. So there you have it, the first seventh day rest, the first Sabbath. It was, it was a blessed and sanctified day. It was set apart. Again, it was supposed to be a happy, holy, good day. But, 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 but let me ask you, why did God rest on the seventh day? Well, was he tired? <laughs> Needed a day off? <laughs> of course not. He was finished. This was an it is finished rest. His work was done he was able to sit back and, and rest in the completeness and goodness of his creation. Let me give you just a little sneak preview. When Jesus finished his work, he too said, it is finished. Then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high, resting as it were. And I'm going to suggest he has become, as a consequence, our Sabbath rest. Seven days a week. Now, roll the clock forward a few millennia after creation. It wasn't until God gave the law that we see Him uh, commanding that humankind observe a Sabbath. 
Still commanded to, I think. It was in Exodus chapter 20 when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. There we read these words in the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your sons, your daughter, male, female. So serious about this, I didn't even want your cattle working or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That is, he set it apart. Pointed out a couple of weeks ago, by the way, that at the end of each of the six days of creation, it says the evening and the morning were the first day. But when we get to the seventh day, there's no evening and morning, which suggests that he has been in perpetual seventh-day rest, which I will suggest for us. Now, again, what was the purpose of the Sabbath? Because the Jews needed a day off? <laughs> they were tired? Maybe this is kind of like the first labor law, so workers couldn't be uh, abused and work seven days a week. Maybe, perhaps. The purpose, though, was rest. But, not, but, but it was a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Don't miss that. On the seventh day, the people were to cease from their work and rest in God. It's important that we understand this. If we see the Sabbath as simply a cessation of labor, a list of prohibitions, then, then we'll, we'll be like Pharisees coming up with all the kinds of things you cannot do. No sports. And we'll focus on the prohibition rather than the command to rest in God, to sit back, as it were, to observe all God is and all that he has done, smile and sigh and say, isn't God good. This was, this was, you see, what's to be the point. Let me give you another sneak preview. It was supposed to, I'm suggesting, to be a picture pointing to the glorious rest we would one day have in Christ, resting in our renewed right relationship with God. So again, what does Sabbath keeping have to do with us Christians? Well, actually, everything when rightly understood. You see, when Christians say we should still observe a Sabbath, I want to say, right, you don't observe it enough if you set aside one day. You think that's all God wants? These are challenging questions with answers all over the board. I want you to know that, that godly, and I do mean godly Christians, do not agree on this. But in our continuing study of Hebrews, the text today, I think, sheds some important light on the topic. So turn to Hebrews chapter 4 as I remind you where we are in the book. We know well by now that the author is encouraging, writing to encourage Jewish believers. His primary method of encouragement is to demonstrate, this is glorious, that Jesus is infinitely superior to anything in the Old Covenant. That is the Old Testament. Anything that, that, that it had to offer. In fact, this is critically important today, for today. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. All the Scripture actually points to Jesus. The, the Old Testament law was fulfilled perfectly by Christ. The Old Testament tabernacle, which later became the temple, and all of those sacrifices were types that pointed to Jesus. As such, Jesus is superior. We've seen thus far, superior to angels and superior to Moses. Further, the author not only encourages them, he also, well, warns them. 
You remember, the, the readers were facing severe persecution because of their new Christian faith. Uh, loss of lots of things, loss of freedom through imprisonment, loss of credibility and reputability, uh, loss of homes and property that were confiscated. And soon they would face loss of life through martyrdom. As a result, many had quit and, and returned to Judaism, which is why the author uh, demonstrates the superiority of Jesus over Judaism, over the Old Covenant. Better said, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament types. But he also warns them rather severely. Five times in the book of Hebrews. We already looked at the first one found in chapter 2. There he said, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, namely this good news about Jesus, so that we don't drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, and we know that by that he's referring to the Old Testament, thought to have been mediated by angels. For if the Old Testament proved unalterable and every transgression of it received just penalty, that is punishment, how will we escape if we neglect this great salvation found in the new covenant? The answer is we won't. So don't neglect your salvation in, found in Christ. Don't drift from it. Per persevere. We find ourselves today then at the end of the second warning. It's a rather long one. We've been in it a few weeks, stretching from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. The, the warning we found is based on Psalm 95, which was a warning to the Israelites, reminding them how their forefathers hardened their hearts, were disobedient to God. They, as a result, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and died in that same wilderness in unbelief. As a result, they, they did not enter his rest. That's rest. That's, that's kind of an interesting word to refer to entering into the land of promise. Well, what was, the, what, what was the warning to those original Hebrew readers, and, and, and what's the warning to us? Take care that there not be any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Rather, encourage one another, um, as long as it is called today, I love this, as long as it's today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In short, don't harden your hearts. I know the Christian life is tough. I know the opposition comes. In fact, I think it's going to become increasingly worse. I'm glad I'm an old man. I think it's going to get worse in our, in our country. I know that it's tough, but persevere to the end. In, in fact, the beginning of chapter 4, right in the middle of this strong warning, he gets stronger. Let us fear, that's the word too, by the way, fear. If, while a promise remains of entering his rest, there, there's that word again. Any one of you may seem to come short of entering it. And he introduces this idea to us, the readers, of entering God's rest. We can enter God's rest. And you say, oh, I didn't know that was the goal of the, uh, for Christians, to enter the promised land of rest. I guess I better put my house on the market. <laughs> Not exactly. Perhaps the author has something else in mind. Maybe there is a different rest found, a fuller rest found in the new covenant. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus 
is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, just like everything else in the Old Covenant. We all get that. He's the fulfillment. So why then do we cling to this idea of a Saturday or Sunday Sabbath? But I'm getting ahead of myself. His point in the first few verses of chapter 4 is this. Having heard the good news of Jesus, be sure to combine what you've heard with faith. Don't be like those Israelites. Don't harden your hearts who heard God's promises but did not believe. Or you will not enter his rest either. Which he keeps talking about it. It begs an important question. What is this rest he keeps mentioning He's made clear that you enter his rest by believing. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter the rest. Well, like, okay, I, now or, or sometime in the future? Good question. He said, but, but I've never even been to Israel. Again, there must be a different rest to which he is referring and I will tell you that it is the rest that God himself entered, having completed his creation, and now invites us to enter with him, having believed in fullness of restored relationship. One day a week? Oh, no. So much more. Brings us to our text, Hebrews 4. Verses 8 to 13, but let's begin reading in verse 6 to pick up the all-important context. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, that is the rest, and, and those who, who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter the rest because of disobedience. We saw that as unbelief. He again fixes a certain day today. I'm saying to you that today, right now, you can enter his rest. Saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. That's a bit confusing. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent, ESV, strive to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of the Israelites of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than... Oh, I know this verse. I've memorized it. Right out of its context. And sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This can be a bit confusing. You see, for the Israelites, the land was obviously the, the place, more than that, a position of rest. But Here's a question for you. Was it just on the seventh day? So they, they, get, they get into the land. Joshua leads them in and God gives them rest every seven days, every Saturday. Or did he give them rest in the land? It seems certain that it was this latter. After the generation of unbelieving Israelites had died in the wilderness, Joshua led them in. And 
We read throughout the book of Joshua, chapter 1, chapter 21, chapter 23, over and over, we, we see the words that God gave them rest. Look at chapter 21, verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their father. So Joshua led them in. They largely conquered the land and God gave them rest. Wonderful. Why then does the author say, for if Joshua had given them rest? I thought he did. If he had given them rest, then if God, he, that would not have spoken of another day after that. In other words, I am suggesting the rest of the land of promise, and indeed, the seventh day Sabbath rest is just a type, pointing to another rest, a rest that we now experience in Jesus. Yes, not yet in its fullness. The best is yet to come. But we rest today, while it's called today, in Jesus, seven days a week. Don't fail to enter it. Now, there's something else here as well. You should know that the Greek name for Joshua is the same Greek name for Jesus, Jesus. In fact, verse 8 could read, if, for if Jesus had given them rest. Of course, context determines whether we translate it Joshua or Jesus, but it's actually the same word. And it is rightly translated Joshua. If the Old Testament Joshua had given them rest, there would not have been need for another. So the New Testament Joshua, named Jesus, did give them another day of final, ultimate, better, glorious rest. And now we find that not only is Jesus better than the angels, not only is he better than Moses, he's, he's better than Joshua. And we remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest on Saturdays. Uh, oh, no. So, so much, so much more. I'll give you the outline as I finally get to it after many pages. Another rest remains, and so be diligent or strive to enter that rest because there is an examination to enter the rest. Remember, this is a warning passage. Don't go out of here saying, man, that guy's just negative all the time. Well, we've been in a warning passage for weeks. This is a good example of the already not yet nature of the Christian life. What do I mean? Yes, we are now, right now, children of God, having experienced the forgiveness of sin. And as such, verse 3, having believed, we enter that rest. The, 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 the one to which the author refers in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken another day uh, of rest for the people of God. We experience that right now. But there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So do we have it or not? Yes. See, the author has been talking about entering God's rest. He introduced the idea of the seventh day Sabbath rest in verse 4 when he said that God entered his rest on the seventh day after he finished his work of creation. But through the, the, the first eight verses, the author uses the word rest over and over and uses a specific word, which 
It speaks of the activity of rest, or it could refer to the place of rest. Um, For the Israelites, I think it was both. It was the land of promise as the place, and it was rest from their enemies. Uh, Further, I would add this um, element uh, to this rest that they enjoyed. It's enjoyment in the land that was their own and enjoyment in the very presence of God. Now in verse 9, the author makes a switch. He uses a different word. Indeed, it is Sabbath rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The people of God are those, both Old and New Testament, who believe God and trust Him for His promises. For for us, those promises are found in Jesus and His gospel. We, we, We get that. But to what does this Sabbath rest refer? You have a rest every Sunday. That's it? That's all you got? Are we just to see it as a place, the land of promise? Certainly not. The people of God had that in verse 8. But something different obviously remains. The seventh day rest? Again, most say no. Rather, he's talking about rest in the very presence of God, actually much more than that, to enter his rest to which he invited his people since he finished the six days of creation. For us, that means, listen carefully, It means a restored relationship with God. And so Sabbath rest refers much, much more than to just no work, no fun. Watch the masters today. I don't care. It refers to a celebration of joy in the presence of our creator God seven days a week because we have been restored because of the work of Christ. We see this spelled out, this idea of joy in his presence in Deuteronomy chapter 12. When you cross the Jordan, Israelites, and live in the land, that's the place, which the Lord, your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all of your enemies around you so that you live in security. It should come to pass that the Lord, uh, that the place in which the Lord, your God, will choose for his name to dwell there, that you sh- there you shall bring, he's talking about the tabernacle and the temple, there you shall bring all the sacrifices. Okay, verse 12. And you shall... Rejoice before the Lord your God. This is the purpose. This is the intent. This is a type of the ultimate rest that remains for the people of God. Rejoicing in the presence of God. Again, here's the question. Do we experience that now? You bet we do. Only on Sunday mornings? No. Seven days a week. Because of the finished work of Christ, we enjoy a restored celebrated relationship with God in his very presence, which is why next week we're going to see that he actually says to us that we can come to the throne of grace anytime we want. Do you see? Do we, do we experience it in its fullness? Not yet. The fullness of both place and position of rest remain to be entered. The already entered rest rest we enjoy the not yet but not yet in its fullness rest that is yet to come the best verse 10 for the one who has entered his rest again notice past tense we have right now entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as god did from his now what in the world does that mean Lots of discussion about that. It could refer to resting from working to produce salvation for ourselves. We cease to work to produce salvation because God in the person of Jesus has already done all of the work. It's possible, but that's a Pauline idea. 
not, not really here in the context. It could more likely be referring to the fullness to come. When we have entered that rest, we no longer do the works of perseverance to prove our salvation. We rest. We've made it in the fullness of the presence of God in the city that he's building yet to come. Again, lots of discussion. Perhaps we should not narrow it too much. We simply cease work in general to rest This is supposed to be joy-filled, to rest in the celebratory fullness of God's presence. That's coming, my brothers and sisters. Look at Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14 is in the midst of, oddly enough, the book of Revelation. And it's in the midst of a long section that is talking about all of the suffering at the end of time that, that, that God's people will be facing. And in the midst of it, there are saints who will persevere. Look at it. Here is the Don't miss it. Perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith. In the midst of all of this opposition and persecution, they keep their faith in Jesus. And I heard of, as a result, I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, who persevere to the end and die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. See? They die in the Lord. Their their, their deeds of perseverance following them, proving the reality of faith. And we rest. We we no longer fear. Now, let me just take a little aside to make a qualification here. Don't think that resting from work means that we just sit around doing nothing. Okay, remember that God assigned work in the Garden of Eden before the fall while Adam and Eve enjoyed the fullness of God's presence. They walked with him in the, in the cool of the day, remember? But they worked the garden during the day. Work is not the result of the curse. It is the difficulty of work that is the result of the curse. But God actually gave us work for our enjoyment, Ecclesiastes 5 says. Do you know that? Now, we mess it up. We're either lazy on the one end or workaholics on the other. We mess up every good gift he's given to us. But he gives us work for our enjoyment. So also, in the new city to come, when we have entered the joy of our master, in the fullness of the joy of our master, remember, well done, good and faithful servant, right there in Matthew chapter 25, 25, you have been faithful over a few things I will make you Ruler over many things. The work's just begun, but it'll be good and glorious work without the difficulty of the curse. Work will continue in celebratory fullness of the age to come in the presence of God. But again, I want to suggest that we are enjoying that, not in its fullness right now. Notice nothing is said of the seventh-day Sabbath or the first day so-called Christian Sabbath. In fact, my argument would be that Paul goes out of his way in the book of Colossians to make sure that we understand that we do not observe certain days or months or years or Sabbaths, he says, any longer. No, don't need to. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. We enjoyed a restored relationship with Christ who has become our Sabbath rest seven days a week. Does that mean we don't enjoy a day of rest, of, of no work? Go ahead, go ahead, fine. But don't forget the positive side of Sabbath rest. It is enjoying the presence of God through worshiping and celebrating Him. So you want to do that? Go ahead. 
You want to do it on Saturdays? Go ahead. I'm going to do it seven days a week, you see, because that's what's intended for God's people. A seven-day Sabbath rest where we worship and celebrate Him. See? Bringing us to our second point, and boy, you take a deep breath, but don't worry. That was most of my sermon. We are nearing the end of this warning passage, but I want to remind you that He is still warning us. Therefore, since entrance into the fullness of His Sabbath rest remains, let us it still remains, even for us, let us be diligent. Again, the ESV has it, let us strive. And we don't like that word, Christians don't work. Yes, we do. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. Who's the disobedience? The Israelites. That's the context. They had been promised rest as a type of the rest to come in Christ. But because of diso- their disobedience of unbelief, they did not enter even into the type of, of rest. So strive to enter that rest so that you don't fall. Again, let me be very clear. We are not working to produce salvation. We are persevering to prove salvation. We are being diligent to not commit apostasy, falling away from the living God. We're keeping our eye on the prize, celebrating the joy-filled presence of God through Christ. Four. Point three. See how fast point two was? Four, point three. There is judgment coming. Verses 12 and 13. Now we normally hear verse 12 quoted to speak of the power and value of the Word of God. Again, most of us memorized it most appropriately because it does address some great truths about the Bible. But in its context... It is the conclusion of the warning passage. The fact that this is the Word of God that acts like a sword is supposed to be a warning to us, you see. Perhaps the author here thinks of the swords of the Amalekites and the Canaanites who cut down the Israelites in Numbers chapter 14. You remember, after they had listened to the ten spies rather than the two, Joshua and Caleb, Rather than listening to God, after God had said that they would now wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die in the wilderness, they decided that they would go take the land by themselves without God, and they fell by the sword. God's judgment came. So also, the Word of God, as a sword, can penetrate the innermost recesses of our lives and expose the reality of our faith or lack thereof. The Word of God is living and active, which means it is effective. It it accomplishes its purposes. It's not dead. It is as powerful and meaningful. Listen, listen carefully. Those people say this is just an old, outdated book. No, that's why we quote Hebrews 4.12. It is is as meaningful and active today as it was 2,000 years ago, as it was 3,000 years ago when Psalm 95 was written, as it was however many thousand years ago when God created sharper than any sword. Remember, Paul refers to the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit. John speaks of his vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, having a sword coming out of his mouth. That's very interesting. The picture means that God's Word is Jesus' Word. And it is two-edged, meaning it will penetrate and prove faith on one side and judge unbelief on the other. It has the ability to pierce soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Don't, don't make that... that 
more than it is. Lots of people use this passage to say all kinds of crazy things. All it means is that it penetrates the deepest recesses of our lives, both physical and spiritual. Think you can, think you can act like a Christian on Sunday mornings, the Christian Sabbath, and ignore him and ignore Christianity and ignore your faith the rest of the week? There's a sword coming. It has the ability to pierce soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Penetrate the deepest recesses of our lives. And having done so, it judges the reality of faith, the thoughts and intentions of the heart where emotions and will are thought to have resided. The Word of God knows you. Such that the truth of God's Word will judge us. No one will be hidden from its sight. All this facade, we will be laid bare before the eyes of the one with whom we have to do. Notice how the author switches from the Word of God to God Himself because since it is God's Word, it is God speaking. This is serious. you will one day be judged by this word. This is glorious truth for those who truly know Him as Lord and Savior. And it is fearful for those who do not. Let's pray. Father, this text was written as a warning. We've been in this second warning for some weeks now. And, and, and we get to the end and we are reminded that we can't hide from you. That you know us. The innermost parts of who we are. The, thing, the parts that we think we have hidden from everybody. You know. Those dark closets, those dark corners that we think nobody knows about, you know. And again, the glorious truth is, for those who truly know Jesus, we have entered rest, and we will enter it in its fullness. For those who do not, the sword will divide. May we take the warning as it is intended. In Christ's name, amen.